Matthew uh, chapter 17, picking up in verse 22. Matthew writes, Now while they were still in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men. And they will kill him, and the third day he'll be raised up. And they were exceedingly sorrowful. When they came to Capernaum, uh, those who received the temple tax came to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the temple tax? He said, Yes. And when he had come into the house, Jesus anticipated him, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth take customs or taxes? From their sons or from strangers? Peter said to him, From strangers. Jesus said to him, Then the sons are free. Nevertheless, lest we offend them, go to the sea, cast in a hook, and take the fish that comes up first. And when you have opened its mouth, you'll find a piece of money. Take that and give it to them for you and me. Uh, again, I just want to welcome you if you're visiting uh, here with us this morning. We've been studying through the, the Gospel of Matthew, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. You know, we're so thankful for Jesus our Savior. We're thankful for God's love in that he provided him for us. And we want to learn all we can about him. You know, our desire is to be conformed into his image as the Bible promises. And, uh, you know, we want to become more and more like him every day. For some of us, you know, that's a little bit, takes a little bit more work than for others. I'm in that group, I'm sure. But um, I'm so thankful that the Lord is willing to patiently work in our lives. And he's promised to complete that work that he's begun in us until it's completed. You know, it's just such a blessing. Well, in verse, uh, verses 22 and 23, Jesus tells his disciples about the treatment that he's about to receive in Jerusalem. Now, this is the third time in the Gospel of Matthew that he's told his disciples that he'll be mistreated in Jerusalem at the hands of the religious leaders and the Gentiles and ultimately be killed. Um, since this is the third time, we're not going to spend a lot of time on these, these couple of verses, but it's interesting to note, every time Jesus speaks of his approaching death, he always mentions uh, he always tells his disciples of his resurrection. In verse 22, we read, Now while they were still in Galilee, while they were staying in Galilee, I'm sorry, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men. And what you want to notice in this verse is this is, you know, Jesus is add, adding a new wrinkle here. Right? It's a new wrinkle that he's never told the disciples before. Um, and that is that he would be betrayed. He's never mentioned that before. They've never heard that before. And I'm sure that new wrinkle is causing them an even greater amount of confusion. Um, verse 23, and they will kill him the third day. He'll be raised up. And they were exceedingly sorrowful. The disciples were sorrowful as they hear this news because they didn't yet have that full picture of what Christ was sent into the world to accomplish. The disciples, they still don't, they don't get it. They still don't understand why, why Jesus came into the world. And it's because they're not indwelt with the Holy Spirit 
at this time. However, they should have pieced together, uh, you know, some things by this time. Jesus had already told them, as I said, that he's going to be crucified. And they should have known by now that when Jesus goes to the cross, he's not going to be a victim. Peter, James, and John has just witnessed uh, Jesus' glory manifest there on the Mount of Transfiguration. His glory bursting forth through his humanity. Glory so bright that they were unable to look upon it, I'm sure. And uh, early in this chapter, uh, speaking of Transfiguration, Matthew said that Jesus' face shone like the sun. Go ahead outside and look in the sun. How long can you do that? So I'm sure they couldn't look on, on this glory very much. He also says that his clothes became as white as light. And Moses and Elijah were there talking with Jesus about what he was going to accomplish when he went to Jerusalem. And Jesus was not a victim, okay? He was not a victim on the cross. Far from it. He went there for you and for me. You know, we were the victims, you know? Adam sinned, and we all sinned in him. Born in sin as descendants of Adam, we're all sinners. And because of this, Jesus came into the world and went to the cross in order to rescue us. He was not a victim. The first time that somebody spat upon him. You know, when they begin to tear at his beard and rip it out of his face, the very first time somebody punches him in the face, right? When they began to beat the crown of thorns is down upon his head with that reed. Or when they whipped him mercilessly. Or, you know, when they drove the nails through his hands and feet. At any time during this process of giving himself as a sacrifice of sin, he could have allowed his glory to burst forth again. And it would have immediately incinerated the nails it would have immediately incinerated the cross that they were nailing him to. It would have incinerated the Romans. You know, it would have immediately incinerated all of Jerusalem and beyond. Jesus was not a victim. He was a victor. He is the savior of the world. Jesus went to the cross because he loves us and he died there for us. And what he accomplished there for us is as powerful as he is because he gave everything he is for it. Jesus is God in human flesh. Almighty God, Yahweh, you know, come to be our substitute to die in our place. You know, when Peter, James, and John were there on the Mount of Transfiguration, what they saw and now what they're hearing from Jesus, you know, is causing them and the other disciples you know, there's just great deal of confusion. And Jesus is telling his disciples that he's going to go to Jerusalem. He's going to be betrayed. He's going to be killed. He's, and he's going to be raised the third day. And they're exceedingly sorrowful at this news because they haven't yet grabbed, they haven't yet grasped why Jesus came into the world. He came into the world to save sinners. Jesus wasn't a victim. He's the victor, and he's provided victory for us over sin and death. And we need to allow that truth to reign every minute of every day in our hearts. Now, in these remaining verses of Matthew 14, Jesus teaches us 
that not every issue is worth contending over. Not every issue in our lives, especially as Christians, is worth offending others over. The lesson that we're to learn from the remainder of Matthew 17 is that we are not to needlessly offend people. We are to carefully and wisely choose that, you know, uh, that which we will contend for in this world. You know, the issues that we are willing to offend people over. So in verse 24, it says, when they had come to Capernaum, uh, those who received the temple tax came to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the temple tax? You know, Jesus and his disciples, they've left Galilee, you know, where the uh, transfiguration occurred. And they've uh, traveled to the area of Capernaum. Capernaum was the kind of headquarters for Jesus's public ministry. And it was also the hometown of Peter and his brother, Andrew. And, um, you know, uh, coming to Capernaum, they stayed in the house. And that house, it was probably Peter's house. And now while they're in the, the city of Capernaum, right there on the shore of the Galilee, there were men there collecting what was known as the temple tax. And the temple tax has its origin back in Exodus chapter 30. And you might remember that the Lord commanded Moses to count and number all the men of the nation uh, that were 20 years old and older that were able to fight and go to war. And as the men were counted, every Jewish male was required to pay a half shekel in order that there wouldn't be any plague that would come upon them during the numbering. Now, God also commanded this half shekel uh, to be paid during the numbering in order that it would be a reminder to them that our power and our strength as a people, as a nation, is not found in our military. Right? It's not found in our great numbers. It's found in our God and our knowledge of him. You know, so the Lord commanded that this half shekel to, uh, would be given as a reminder of the people. And the proceeds, which were given by 600,000 plus men, uh, you know, the proceeds were to be dedicated to the tabernacle at that time, for its maintenance, and then later uh, for the construction of the temple and for its maintenance is what that tax came to be. But initially, it was uh, just there to be a reminder. Now, it seems that this particular tax that God uh, placed upon the children of Israel was to be limited. It was intended to be a one-time tax. It was a specific tax given for a specific time in their history. But what had happened is after the nation of Israel came back, they returned from the Babylonian captivity. The Jewish religious leaders, they took it upon themselves to make this tax permanent. It wasn't a command of God. It was strictly their own doing. And they declared that every single Jewish male needed to pay this half shekel tax for the maintenance of the tabernacle, and then, like I said, ultimately, the temple. Technically, this was a voluntary tax uh, as the time went on, right? Initially, it was required and commanded by God, but as the religious leaders demanded this tax to be permanent, 
Technically, it was a voluntary tax, you know. Uh, but what they did was they attached the stigma to this tax uh, that if a Jewish male didn't pay it, they would begin to question his seriousness regarding the things of God, you know, his love for God, his love for the nation of Israel, his love for the traditions of Israel. So paying the tax became a, kind of like a, a litmus test of a person's, a man's spirituality. You didn't pay the tax, you know, uh, well, they looked down on you because you didn't put your money where your mouth was, right? If you did pay the tax, then, they, then you were considered a spiritual person. And again, it's very important that we understand, that we remember that this tax, that the tax collectors are now demanding Jesus to pay was not a command of God. That's very important. It was an invention of the religious leaders of Israel. It was an imposed tax. It was strictly a man-made tradition. And we also should know that a half shekel was a considerable amount of money. I mean, think about, uh, it, it was, it was, you know, a half shekel was, you know, a two days wage for a working man. And if you just think to yourself, how much money you make working two days. I mean, it's a considerable amount of money, you know. Now, the religious leaders knew that people couldn't travel all over Israel to come down to Jerusalem and pay this tax. So at certain times of the year, what they did in order for the religious leaders to get the full amount of this tax, uh, what they did was they sent men men all over the, the country to collect this tax. And these tax collectors would set their table up in a major city. And Capernaum at this time was a major city. And they did this, you know, attempting, you know, to make it easier for just people to pay the, this temple tax. Now with this background, it helps us to understand the question that the tax collectors are asking Peter in verse 24. Does your teacher not pay the temple tax. You know, they're fully aware that Jesus hadn't paid the temple tax, right? Now, Jesus doesn't feel the need to pay the temple tax because it's not a command of God. But a man-made tradition of the religious leaders, he recognizes it for what it is. It wasn't, if it was a command of God, he would have paid it immediately. Jesus said, Matthew 5.17, do not think that I came to destroy the law and the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. So he would have paid it immediately if it was a command. Now, we should also notice here that they asked this question of uh, Peter in a negative form. Does your teacher not pay the temple tax? You know, there's an accusation in the way they pose a question. In fact, it's more of an accusation than a question. What they're doing here is questioning Jesus's spirituality because he hadn't paid the tax yet. They're questioning his love for Israel. They're questioning his love. I mean, it's laughable. They're questioning Jesus's love for the God of Israel because he hadn't yet paid this tax. We also want to notice, too, in this verse, they refuse to call Jesus by name. They, see, they say, your teacher, or in other words, your rabbi. They even refuse to call him a rabbi or teacher of Israel. You know, he's your teacher. They won't call him by his name, 
much less acknowledge who and what he truly is, which is the very thing that the religious leaders were stumbling over. And that is that he's the son of God, God the son. They refused to recognize Jesus as divine. You know, they're ignoring all the miracles and the teaching and declarations regarding himself of who he truly is. And it's because their hostility towards Jesus at this point in time is off the charts. It's so very great. And they're looking for even the smallest offense that they can find in his life in order to accuse him. And we've seen in our study of Matthew's gospel up to this point how Jesus has so offended the religious leaders by exposing their hypocrisy and by ignoring their man-made traditions. And, you know, at this time, they're actively looking for a way to destroy Jesus. They want to kill him, and they want to rid the nation of Israel and the world of his teaching and of his voice. So in verse 25, they ask this question of Peter, probably not knowing what to say. Peter immediately answers for Jesus and says, well, yes, of course Jesus pays the tax. You know, Peter loves Jesus and he understands what the tax collectors are implying here. And so he's defending Jesus's reputation. What would have been better for uh, Peter uh, to say was, you know what? I'm not really sure. Why don't you go ask Jesus? You know, anytime someone corners you about Jesus and they ask you, you know, something that you're not sure of, what does Jesus think about, you know, uh, this issue? You know, or what's he doing uh, in this particular situation? Why is he allowing that? How's he feel regarding this thing? You know, there's nothing wrong with, with us saying, you know what, I'm not really sure. Why don't you go and ask him? That's perfectly okay. You know, we should never feel bad about not knowing what Jesus is doing. You know, what he thinks about something or why he's allowing this particular situation to occur. If we would refer them directly to Jesus, you know, it would make things much easier for us. And actually, I think it would make uh, things much easier for Jesus. Jesus didn't intend to pay this tax right? But now that Peter said he would, it kind of puts Jesus in a difficult uh, situation. Jesus is going to take care of the situation in a beautiful way. Just wait and see. But as he does, you know what he's going to do is he's going to uh, teach us a wonderful lesson while he takes care of the situation. Verse 25 continues, and when he had come into the house, Peter returns to the house you know, like I earlier mentioned, it's probably his house. And Jesus had been there in the house while Peter was out and about, you know, the town taking care of his business. But before Peter even enters into the house, Jesus knows all about the conversation that Peter's had with a tax collector. It's called the omniscience of God. And it just means that he knows everything, right? Peter probably comes through the door and was ready to say, Jesus, you know what they're asking me downtown? Uh... And Jesus, he doesn't need to hear the whole story. He knows exactly what had happened uh, and what Peter's about to say. And knowing what happened and knowing what Peter's about to say, he asks Peter a question. What do you think, Simon? 
From whom do the kings of the earth take custom? From their sons or from strangers? In other words, Jesus is saying, Peter, do kings to collect tax and duties from their sons or from others that aren't part of the royal family? Now, in these days, no tax collector in his right mind uh, would go to the king's house and knock on the door and demand taxes from the king and his, from his sons. And the reason is, first, you know, his head would probably be lifted off of his shoulders. But secondly, you know, um, the king and his household, they were exempt from taxes. And the reason being is the king was already giving his entire life to considerable, the considerable work of response and responsibility of leading the people, you know, uh, righteously ruling, ordering the nation, overseeing the kingdom, to charge him a tax for doing as much, you know, uh, to tax him on top of all of that, it would have been a tremendous insult. You know, it'd be the same as saying, you know, we're going to tax you for the privilege of working yourself to death on our behalf. So they didn't tax the king or his family. And in response to Jesus' question to Peter, from who do the kings of the earth take customs or taxes, from their sons or from strangers, Peter said to him, from strangers. Peter here confirms that even the pagans in, in, in godless nations don't tax the kings or their sons who are engaged in laying down their lives on behalf of the nation. And Jesus said to him, then Peter, the sons are free. And what Jesus is saying is because he's the son of God, who is the great sacrifice of heaven, laying down his life for the good of mankind, he shouldn't further be taxed for the upkeep of his father's house, specifically the temple there in Jerusalem. But the really big thing that Jesus is communicating to Peter, and he's communicating this to us this morning, he always wants us to, to remember this, is that he's declaring himself to be um, exempt from paying the temple tax because he is the son of God. That's what Jesus is declaring here. And the very thing that the religious uh, leaders, it was the very thing that the, the religious leaders refused to acknowledge and make no mistake about it. Yes, Jesus is the Son of God and God the Son, 100% deity and robed in humanity. And since the temple was his father's house, you know, and if an earthly king wouldn't uh, charge a tax to his sons um, for the maintenance of his house, God the Father certainly wouldn't uh, charge Jesus for the maintenance and upkeep of the temple. Now, Jesus' command lays a little bit of a foundation for what is happening here. And we want to uh, take particular note of what Jesus commands here. Verse 27, Nevertheless, lest we offend them, go to the sea, cast in a hook, and take the fish that comes up first. And just as a side note, it's interesting to me, this is the only mention of fishing with a hook and line in the Bible. All the other uh, fishing in the Bible is done with a net. Jesus continues, and when you have opened its mouth, you'll find a piece of money. Take that and give it to them for me and you. And the interesting thing about this, to, to me at least, is despite Jesus' objection to paying this temple tax, 
based on the fact that he's the son of God. Jesus instructs Peter still, go to the Sea of Galilee, throw in a line, and the first fish you catch, you know, you'll find a coin in its mouth. That will provide supernaturally enough money for you and me to uh, pay the tax. And Jesus spends all this time with Peter driving this point home that the Son of God, as the Son of God, he's not required to pay this tax. And then what does he do? He pays the tax. You know, the beautiful thing about this is he explains his actions in four words at the beginning of verse 27. And you want to circle or underline them, at least in your mind, because they're the point of this entire passage. Jesus said, lest we offend them, right? That's the lesson. That's what he's teaching Peter here. And that's what he wants to teach us uh, this morning from this passage. Not that he can supernaturally use fish to provide for our needs. The lesson, lest we offend them, is the whole reason behind the conversation with Peter. And it's the whole reason behind the miracle. I think it's important for us to understand as Christians, Jesus is not saying that we should never, ever, under any circumstance, offend people, right? One of the crazy things that is happening in this culture we live in today is that not offending someone has, um, you know, not offending someone under any circumstances, right, has become more important than the truth. More important than speaking the truth in public or in our homes. More important than seeking the truth. And that craziness that's rampant in our country today gets a free ride hiding behind the word tolerance, right? It gets a pass because people who want to speak and hear the truth are afraid of this current cancel culture that we are living in. You know, what's completely insane to me is most of the sins you see trying to gain a foothold in our, our, our culture, demanding tolerance from others, actually already has tolerance, right? In actuality, what they're asking for and aggressively demanding is acceptance, which is a lot more than tolerance. The reality is vast segments of our culture are, behind, are hiding behind this idea of tolerance, and they're demanding that the truth be silent so that nobody will be offended. You know, we can't, our nation can't go on like that forever because there is such a thing as truth. And whether I like it or not, or whether it hurts your feelings or not, or whether the world agrees with it or not, there is truth. And there are lies out there. There is right and wrong. And you know what? It doesn't change. Truth can never be changed, and certainly not by ignoring it or saying that it doesn't exist. You know, it's interesting that Jesus regularly offended people so you can't say that we're never to offend people. One time Jesus was speaking to the Pharisees, you know, the religious leaders of the Jews, you know, and he rebuked them. He rebuked them publicly. He rebuked them harshly publicly because the religious leaders were trying to trap him publicly. And 
His disciples came to him after the events and said, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard that saying? But he answered and said, every plant which my heavenly father has not planted will be uprooted. Let them alone. They are blind leaders of the blind. And if the blind leads the blind, both will fall into a ditch. Blind guides. I think that that's such an appropriate um, you know, warning for our culture today. If only they had ears to hear it. To the fair-weathered followers of Jesus after he fed the 5,000, Jesus began to speak to them with great force. He spoke of the demands that he placed upon a man or a woman who wanted to follow after him in order to be a disciple of his in this world. And when the crowd began to melt away as he laid out the demands of discipleship, John 6, 61 through 63 says, when Jesus knew in himself that his disciples complained about this, he said to them, does this offend you? What then if you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. Far from apologizing for his offense, Jesus confronted them with it and he would not back down from it. You know, I think it's safe to say that if a person is ever offended by Jesus, his life, or his teaching, we need to understand that there's something very wrong with that person. The problem will never lie. The problem is not with Jesus. I mean, think about how often the Apostle Paul offended people. You know, someone might ask, well, Gary, how often did he offend people? Often enough. In the course of his public ministry, he was beaten five times, five different times with 39 stripes. Ten times they couldn't find whips, so they just picked up rods and they beat him with rods. He was uh, imprisoned multiple times. He was stoned to death once, and God raised him up. And then what did he do? He brushed himself off and went right back into that city. And Paul considered all of that a badge of honor. Paul said in Galatians 1.10, for do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? For if I still please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. We cannot be a follower of Jesus Christ and a man pleaser. We can't do it. Think about Stephen, Acts chapter 7, when he stood up in front of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was a group of the most powerful religious leaders in the world. And Stephen began to review their history to them. He began to speak of them, of their history of rejecting the prophets that God sent to him, uh, to them, to the nation of Israel. And now they've rejected and crucified Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. And they became so angry when Steve, uh, with Stephen that they began to gnash their teeth. Now, listen. If, you know, while I'm up here, while I'm teaching, I see everyone begin to gnash their teeth. You know, they start grinding their teeth and they clench their jaws. You know, I know something bad's about to happen and I'm going to start looking for an exit. But the gnashing of teeth of the, these religious leaders, it was an involuntary uh, response to what they were hearing Stephen say. And it says in Acts chapter 7 that Stephen was full of the Holy Spirit. You know, the Spirit of God will offend people. He'll convict people. And the religious leaders were so offended by the truth 
of what Stephen was saying, they rose up and they carried him out of that building and they carried him to the edge of the city and they stoned him to death there. You know, the Bible teaches us that every faithful servant of the Lord will offend people and be persecuted for it. Paul wrote to Timothy, 2 Timothy 3.12, Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ will suffer persecution. You know, all you have to do is to live godly in this world and be a faithful servant of Jesus Christ, and you will be an offense to people. And people will seek to persecute you uh, because of it. You know, the fact of the matter is, as a Christian, if we never offend anyone, we're not being Christ-like. You know, we're not being led by the Holy Spirit, and we're not being faithful to his truth. I promise you, if you meet a Christian that says, I never offend anyone, you know what? I guarantee you that person isn't sharing the gospel because the gospel is an offense to the pride of men. Not everyone will be offended by the gospel, but the majority of people are offended uh, by it. So as we share Christ with our friends and uh, neighbors, with our coworkers and people that we run into uh, during the day, you know, we can expect to encounter people who will be offended. And I think it's important to understand that Jesus is not declaring to his disciples that we're never to offend people. That's impossible, right? Like I've already mentioned, to live godly in this fallen world is going to be an offense to people. You know, we will be an offense to people living in sin, people living in their pride, people living in wickedness. But what Jesus is declaring to us here, and this is so important to understand, is that there are things that are not worth uh, fighting over. They're not worth offending unbelievers over. Jesus is modeling the fact that we're not to offend non-Christians over non-essentials like paying temple tax. I mean, pay the temple tax if you want it. Don't pay it. It had no basis in God's word. If you want to do it, do it. You don't want to do it, don't do it, right? There's no need to offend people over issues like that. It was just a tradition. You know, I think of uh, examples of non-essentials that are not worth offending people over today. I think of global warming, you know, and the whole green movement. Personally, I really uh, wish we recycled better in America and in our area. You know, in Germany, it was awesome. We had a large receptacle for yard debris. You know, we had one for plastic. We had one for paper and cardboard. Some areas of Germany, they recycled uh, bio waste, you know, the things that came out of your kitchens, coffee grounds and, and stuff like that. You know, I'm all for being a good steward for our planet. God gave it to us to have dominion over it. And he didn't give it to us to destroy it. You know, we're to be good stewards of the earth. And I frequently look at how much, when I was living in California working for the army, I drove by a, a landfill twice a day, going to work and coming back. And I just saw that thing fill up. I frequently think about how much garbage and how much waste each American produces. Our landfills are filling up, you know, with needless, oversized packaging. You know, we're filling up our landfills and we're going to run out of places to dump our garbage. And I share these concerns with people in the green movement. But as a Christian, 
I also know that there's going to be incredible environmental damage uh, that will occur to the world during the tribulation period that's coming, right? And I know that the world is temporary. I know there's a time coming when this world is going to give way to new heavens and a new earth. And even though I understand these things, I'm not going to fight over them with people who don't uh, have that knowledge and want to take better care of the earth and they're a little bit more uh, you know, engaged in it than I am. I'm not going to fight over that because I have a greater message that I want to get across to people. It's the message of the free gift of salvation provided in Jesus Christ. I don't want to strain or destroy a relationship over a lesser issue. You know, I think of other things that are non-essentials. You know, there, there are people that argue over the vaccine. Do I get it? Do you get it? Do you not get it? You know, uh, they argue over the current uh, immigration problems, the administration and the way they're handling things, race relationships and the, and the BLM. You know what, to me, all lives matter. And we should extend to everyone the same grace and uh, love that has been extended to us by God. You know, there are Christians that take dogmatic stands over non-moral political issues. You know, my opinion on so many issues is so unimportant and it doesn't change anything. It's not worth offending somebody over the price of tea in China. Do you, you understand what I'm saying? You know, as an example, what we should do, you know, I had, a, I had a, a good friend who took a team to England and one day they went to Hyde Park. And if you don't know, Hyde Park is, a, is, is famous for people who, at the very least in the past, you know, they would go there and uh, they would publicly share their opinions, their thoughts and theses on, you know, many controversial uh, topics. It was a place of free speech. Well, my friend, he, he takes his team down there to Hyde Park to do some open-air preaching. And uh, there was this little girl, little in size, not in age, but she was a new believer. She gets up and she's going to uh, share, uh, you know, Christ. She's going to just begin open-air preaching. And as she gets up to share, there was this one guy listening who took offense at what she was saying. And so he tried to get her off topic and tried to engage her in something controversial in order to trap her and discredit her and her message. And everything this guy asked her to comment on, she would say, I don't really know about that. But what I do know is that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever would believe in him should not perish, not yet, pretty close, <laughs> should not perish but have everlasting life. Then that guy asked her something else, and the response was, I don't really know about that either. But what I do know is that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have her ever everlasting life. I mean, she had a greater message and she wisely wasn't going to be drawn into some controversial conversation where she could have needlessly offended someone with her opinion that was standing by listening, right? I mean, if we're going to offend someone, let's offend them over a bigger and more important issue, right? In these verses, Jesus is being careful not to needlessly offend religious people who are not yet Christians. He doesn't want to drive them away based on something like the temple tax, 
right? Because he has a much more important message of salvation that he wants to deliver them to them. You know, when a Jehovah's Witness, when a J-Dub comes to my door, you know, or a couple of young guys with their backpack on, they get off their bike and they, they got a Book of Mormon, they come knocking on my door. You know what? They're all very nice. They're all very sincere. And they start off with a little bit of small talk, you know, in order to see where you're coming from, if you know anything about God or religion. And then they want to move into some of their doctrine. You know, they want to direct the conversation and the way that they've been trained. You know, and I, I personally, I don't really allow that to happen. I don't want them to, to uh, determine what issue I'm going to offend them over because I know I'm going to offend them. I'm not going to offend them just for the sake of offending them, but I'm going to offend them because I love them enough to share the truth with them. And I know that will offend them. Right? I know what's the big issue between a born-again believer and a J-dub. You know, I know what that issue is between the Mormon and a born-again believer. Right? The big issue between us is Jesus. The Jehovah's Witness believes that Jesus is the archangel Michael. You know, the Mormon believes that Jesus is the brother of Lucifer. Jesus is neither. He's the son of God and God the son. And I'll show them in the Bible. Uh, for the J-Dub, I'll show them in their Bible, the New World Translation. For the Mormon, you know, it's a little bit harder because they say, you know, the Bible is only as accurate as it can be properly interpreted, right? But I take them to the Gospel of John and I'll walk them through the Gospel of John. And I always show them, John 8, 24, which says, Therefore, I said to you that you will die in your sins, for if you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Now, what you need to understand is that where it says he, I am he, the he is in italics, which means it's not really there, right? Uh, the publishers, they, they inserted it there, trying to help you to understand you know what Jesus is saying? But in this case, they shouldn't have put it there because Jesus is ever so clearly claiming to be God. He's claiming to be the great I am in that verse. He's claiming to be God of all creation, almighty God, Jehovah God himself. Jesus is not an angel. He's not a created being. He's certainly not the brother of Lucifer. Jesus is the Son of God, God the Son, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made. It took the perfect Son of God. He's the only one who could pay the price for our sins. That's where I try to direct the conversation because their view of Jesus is the big issue. Their salvation is the big issue. The big issue to God, you know, it's the big issue to God. And you know what? Frankly, it needs to be the big issue for us too. When we walk, when we talk, I should say, when we talk with someone who's a Roman Catholic, I mean, we shouldn't bother getting into a conversation, things like, you know, praying to Mary or praying to the saints. You know, we shouldn't spend time talking uh, to them about not eating meat on Fridays. I mean, now they do, right? Or argue with them over the authority of the Pope, right? What we should ask them is, are you born again? 
Are you born again? And we should share with them, you know, what it means to be born again. Because Jesus said, unless a man is born again, you know, he will not, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. A lot of Catholics are born again. And praise the Lord for that. But you know what? A lot of Catholics aren't born again. You know, we must not offend them over some peripheral issue. We need to protect the greater message and share with them the need to be born again. We need to keep the main thing, the main thing and not get sidetracked with something that doesn't amount to a hill of beans. Our message to people should be that it doesn't matter what system or thing that you're involved in, you need to be born again in order to enter the kingdom of heaven, in order to be saved. You know, I want to see everyone born again. I want to see everyone reading the Bible, depending on the Holy Spirit. And interestingly enough, that's what God wants too. Well, you know what? We can't control the fact that we're going to have enemies in this world as Christians. I can't control the fact that people will actively, uh, you know, try to oppose me. And, and we can't control that, right? But we can control the issues that we in, in, uh, choose to engage people in. They're not to decide those issues supremely. We're to decide those issues. And the way we decide those issues is this. By virtue of which issue we choose to ignore as insignificant. And which issue we choose to engage them in. In the verses we're looking at this morning, these guys want to make a big issue out of the temple tax. And, and Jesus won't take the bait. You know, he refuses to be drawn into it. He came into the world in order to provide uh, mankind with salvation, the forgiveness of sins, right? To reconcile us to the Father, that we might enjoy a personal relationship with the Father and have the confidence of everlasting life in heaven with him, right? If Jesus falls for the trap here, they're going to have what they need to falsely accuse him and also brand him, you know, some anti leader of an anti-tax movement. Right? How bad would it have been if he took the bait and he became known as an anti-tax crusader instead of what he came into the world to do for us? Right? Jesus protected what he came to do, the message he came to deliver by not being drawn into an argument over meaningless, unimportant issues. He wouldn't let them take him off message. I think one of the hardest things for Christians to do when sharing the gospel with someone is to stay on message. Not to let people drag us into a bait over, you know, a non-essential issue like the pygmies in Africa in order to derail us from what we're doing, sharing the gospel with them. You know, you have to admire the Apostle Paul and how focused he was. He stayed on message all the way through to the end of his life. Near the end of his life in Acts chapter 26, you know, when he was brought before King Agrippa and Festus, the Roman governor. Remember, Paul had been falsely accused by the religious leaders. He'd been in prison a long time by this time. And it was an unjust imprisonment. When Paul finally gets a chance to stand up and to speak for himself in front of the king, in front of the governor and the other dignitaries of the area, he didn't try to defend himself against the charges. He used that opportunity to declare to them his testimony, right? Who he was before meeting Jesus. 
meeting Jesus, the change that took place in his life when Jesus came into his heart and into his life and how he spent his life since that time that, that he became a follower of Jesus. He never allowed himself to get off message or be drawn away from the call of God in his life. And when you read the book of Acts, you walk away with an appreciation of just how tough, man, and how focused Paul was. That guy was as tough as nails. I mean, he refused to allow anyone or anything to get him uh, to focus on something other than what God had called him to do in his life. He was always, uh, he always knew when to offend people and when not to offend people. Even with Christians, he knew where to offend them and where not to. You know, Romans chapter 14 and 15, he talks about eating meat as Christians. And he says, you know, that they sacrifice all these animals uh, to false gods. And, you know, the meat that's in the meat market that has been sacrificed to idols, he says, it's actually cheaper than the meat that hasn't been sacrificed to idols down the street. You know, and as Christians, we're always looking for a bargain. So Paul says, feel free to buy the meat that's been sacrificed to idols and eat it if you want. Right? It's not a big deal. But then he goes on to say, however, if I run into a brother who sees it as a big deal, Paul says, not only will I not eat meat that's been sacrificed to idols, I won't eat meat at all. I'll become a vegetarian. I will not offend someone over things that are unnecessary. Paul wrote to the church in Corinth regarding the length of men's hair in their culture and, and women wearing head coverings uh, in the church. And he said, but if anyone seems to be contentious, we have no such custom, nor do the churches of God. In other words, he's saying, we're not going to fight over these kinds of things. You know, we're not going to contend with you over the, that, that stuff, right? For the kingdom of God, Paul wrote to the Romans, is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. You know, there are certain kinds of people in the body of Christ who really need to understand and apply what Jesus is teaching here, right? There are Christians that know nothing but fighting and arguing and offending others. They have no discernment on what they're willing to offend people over. They'll fight over every jot and tittle, you know, over every issue, because fight is what's in them. They don't choose their battles. They fight every battle. They argue every battle. And they'll win the argument. But in the process of doing so, they damage their testimony. Or even worse, they confuse people regarding what Christianity is all about. You know, there are things that are not worth fighting over. And there are things that are not worth offending non-Christians over. Things that have no spiritual or eternal value. There are things, however, we must speak up regarding. And we need to be clear on this. There are battles that we're forced into and we have to enter them no matter what offense they cause to others. And these include the truths that are found in God's word. And most certainly God's mean of salvation provided for all mankind. God's assessment of the condition of mankind apart from Jesus Christ. That all have sinned, we're all less than perfect and fall short of the glory of God. One of the things is his provision 
for our salvation. God has provided a savior for us in the person of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sin. Again, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And also that Jesus is the only way to the Father. Placing your faith in him, committing your life to him is the only way to receive forgiveness of your sins. It's the only way to enter into heaven. Jesus said, John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's the thing that offends people most in our culture, I think, right? Uh, Peter said of Jesus while preaching in, in Jerusalem, Acts 4.12, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Peter wrote to Timothy, 1 Timothy 2.5, saying, For there is one God, one mediator between uh, God and man, and that's the man Christ Jesus. The Bible teaches the way of salvation offends men's pride, right? Because it speaks truthfully about our condition and our need. It speaks honestly about our sin and our need for a Savior. And it exposes us as being unable to merit or earn our own salvation. And that's a, that offends our pride, our pride because we don't like to think of ourselves as really all that bad. You know, our condition is that desperate. We don't like to think that way. You know, or that we can't add something to our salvation. The Bible teaches that many people in the world, they will hear God's assessment of them, like probably, you know, most of us, if not all of us in this room this morning, that we've fallen short, that we're less than perfect, that we've sinned against the, a holy God, all of which makes us, you know, unacceptable for heaven and disqualifies us for a relationship with God. But God loves us so much that he sent his son into the world to be our substitutionary sacrifice for our sins. Right? And it just means he took, he, he paid our price. You know, he bore in our place the penalty our, our sins deserved. And now Jesus has made a way for us to enter into a right relationship with the Father. Anyone, if they'll turn from their sins and turn to God, if they'll confess Jesus as Lord, give him their life and walk in obedience with him, you know, they can be saved and have all their sins forgiven. And the Bible teaches that the Holy Spirit will come into that person at that time and uh, they'll be born again. It's a free gift extended to anyone and everyone who will receive it. You know what, if you're here today or watching online and you've never given your life to Jesus, you need to do it. And I would encourage you to do it today. You know, a relationship with God is what you were created for. And life will never make sense until, you, until, you, until you're engaged in that which you were created for. You know, church family, Jesus is teaching us here that we're not to needlessly offend people or to be drawn into something that will take us off message, right? To cause us to lose focus on the purpose that he has us here for as his disciples. And that purpose is to boldly, unapologetically share the gospel with people who are lost. And again, you know what? 
This always comes to my mind. If we don't do it, who out there is going to do it? You know what? God's given us that privilege. We need to lovingly, let boldly, yet boldly, share the truth of salvation with everyone you know that we know and that we meet. Let's pray. Father God, I just thank you again for your word. So very precious, so very instructive, so very illuminating. Lord, God, I, I confess, I, I argue over too many non-essential things. Lord, help me. Help us. Help us as, as your bride, Lord, as your body, to focus on what's important, to keep the main thing the main thing. Lord, I ask it in your name. And I just want to ask, you know what? If you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you know, I, I would just ask you, what are you waiting for? You can receive forgiveness today. You can place your faith in Christ today. And you know, the Lord's just been stirring on my heart that I need to ask. I need to give an opportunity. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ and you would like to put your faith in him, raise your hand. Raise your hand real quick. I'll see it. And we'll just pray for you. Just a minute. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it. If the Lord's speaking to your heart, this is the time to act. And if you're watching online and you don't know Jesus Christ, you know, all it takes is you just bow your knee right now, right where you're at, and you say, Lord, forgive me of my sins. I'm a sinner. I agree with your assessment and the eye have fallen short. Lord, I believe you are God the Son, the Son of God, and that you took my place on the cross, Lord. And I, and I pray that you would come into my life and be my Lord and Master. Turn my life around, Lord. I give it to you. I'm going to turn from my sin, and I'm going to turn to you. Lord, help me walk in obedience, in obedience. And if you'll do that, the Holy Spirit will come into your life, and you'll be born again, and your name will be written uh, in the Lamb's Book of Heaven. And you can have a confidence of everlasting life with him. Lord, we just thank you again for this time. Lord, you're so gracious, so good. Move in our lives, work in our lives, accomplish that work that you've started in us for your glory. In your name we pray, amen.